You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. So this is our third to last week in the book of Acts. Uh, Where we've been so far, the things that we've been talking about so far is this. We saw how Jesus empowered his guys, his, his disciples, his followers, which includes us, when he left. He gave them empowerment to go out and do the mission, to continue the mission that he had started. And we saw that they were doing that within, in boldness, not a boldness of their own accord, but one that was given to them because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that they had received. And we, we have that same gift today. We have the very presence of God living within us because we are his temple. And then we talked about how God protects his church. He protects his church. And then last week, we talked about how it's easy for us to get off course sometimes. And God will use people and circumstances in our lives to help correct us to get us back on mission. One of those circumstances we talked about last week specifically was Stephen and the murder that, of Stephen by the Sanhedrin and how God used that moment, that circumstance, to get the church back on track to continue the mission of spreading the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. Today, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 10, and we're going to see the Spirit leading Peter into an interaction with a man named Cornelius. And this interaction is going to be something that puts a little bit of a plot twist in the mission, I think, for Peter. Now, we're jumping over a couple of different chapters in the, in the, in the text. Uh, we're going to jump, you're, if you haven't read Acts in a while, chapters 8, chapters 9, I encourage you to take some time today and do that. You're going to read about Philip, and you're going to see his, his work, his ministry in Samaria. You're going to see him do a disappearing act. That is pretty cool. You're going to read about Saul, the very man who was breathing hatred towards the church and going from town to town, house to house, arresting the believers. He himself becomes a follower of Jesus, and that's all in those other chapters. So take some time today. It's going to be awesome for you to do that. So as we're jumping into the text today, based off of what we talked about last week, we would expect that we're going to be somewhere other than Jerusalem because God had started to scatter them and get them out to do what they had supposed, were supposed to be doing. Now we're told, as we get into the text, you'll see here in a minute that Peter is, a, is in a town called Joppa. And the guy that he meets up with, a guy, Cornelius, is in a city named Caesarea. I'm going to throw up a map here so that you can see where we are in the region. As you can tell, just by looking at the map, we are in two cities who are right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And the distance between these two cities is about the same distance it is from here to Lewiston. So we're talking about 30, 35 miles. Now the city of Joppa, which is now modern-day Tel Aviv, is a very old port city. There's lots of different extra-biblical sources, and all that means is that sources outside the Bible, that talk about Joppa being in existence all the way back into the 15th century B.C. So it's been there a while. It's an old city. 
It's also referred to within the text, or the Old Testament, a few times. And one of those instances is within connection to uh, the prophet Jonah. This is the city that Jonah runs to after God tells him to go to the, the city of Nineveh, to go to Nineveh and to preach against their w- wickedness and call them to repentance. Instead of doing that, which is up on the northeastern corner of that map, he runs to Joppa to find a boat to flee from God. Joppa operated as a port, one of the main ports for the, the nation of Israel for a long time. And the control of that city changed hands over the course of the years uh, until Rome came into power. And then in 30 BC, Caesar Augustus gives that, sea, that city to Herod the Great, the same Herod who is in power over Israel when Jesus was born. So that operates as like the primary only port city for all of Israel for a long time. And after Herod gets it, he decides, this country needs another port. But there's no great places to build a harbor along that coastline. It's just straight up. But Herod was a guy who made the impossible possible. He's like, I'm going to figure this out. So he finds a place that he likes, north of Joppa, this marshy little fishing village that was there, and he decides this is going to be the spot. So he starts to build his harbor and his city, and it takes him 12 years. And after 12 years, he builds this and names it Caesarea. There's lots of Caesareas throughout the ancient world, and that name was used over and over because it means Caesar. The city is named after Caesar. He also built that harbor, which is one of the many wonders of the world. This is probably Herod's greatest achievement, which is saying something because the guy built a lot of amazing things in the ancient world. But he took that harbor, he built it, and then he named that Sebastos. Sebastos is Greek for Augustus. Herod took nothing and built a city and a harbor and named it after Caesar Augustus. It was in a monument to the Roman Empire. That number C right there, that's a temple to Caesar. First thing you'd see coming into town. So this is a very, very Roman city. So now I want us to jump into the text and jump into this city and see what God does next in his story of restoring all things. So come with me, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, over to Acts chapter 10. And we're going to be in Acts 10 for the rest of the morning. Here's what God's word says. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So a, a centurion obviously is a Roman soldier, and they were a leader within the, the organization. They led anywhere from 80 to 100 men. That's why they're called centurions. 
And this is not the first one that we come across in the text. In fact, it's the third one. The last centurion that we see in the text was standing at the foot of the cross and was there to witness the crucifixion of Jesus. And as he stood there and, and, and witnessed all that had happened that day, at the very end of it, after Jesus had died, what did he say? Surely this was the Son of God. And before that, we saw another centurion. He lived in the, the small fishing village of Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters of his ministry up in the, in the Galilee. And just like Cornelius, that centurion was described as someone who was a God-fearing man, also a Gentile. And he was also generous in his city and was well-respected with the town folk. Now that term God-fearing, or you might see it everywhere, other places in the text as God-fearer, does not mean that they were believers, followers of Jesus. Not yet. That was a term used for Gentiles, non-Jews, who believed that the God of Israel was the one true God. In order to be a full convert into Judaism, there were a lot of things that had to happen. You know, things like circumcision. You had to follow the laws of Torah, which included lots of different things, eating a restrictive diet among some of that going to the temple and and offering sacrifice there. So Cornelius and the centurion in in Capernaum would not have been able to be full-fledged converts into Judaism because they're Roman citizens and Roman soldiers. They, They couldn't go to the temple. But they definitely wouldn't have known who God is. And they would have been worshiping him in any way that they possibly could. This is who Cornelius is. As we continue in the text, verse 3, it says, One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. Remember last week I said everybody responds to angels in fear? There it is again. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as memorial offering before God. This memorial offering that the angel is talking about is referencing back to Leviticus 2 when God was giving him instructions on how to, to do different offerings and it's specifically about the grain offering. And they were supposed to take a portion of it and give it as an offering and burn it before God And it says that as they burned it, it became a pleasing aroma that rose up into heaven to to the Lord. And the angel just said, your prayers are like that. Wouldn't it be awesome to have an angel come to you and say, your prayers are a sweet aroma to the Lord? I think that would be pretty sweet. The angel continues. Now send men to Joppa, to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius had two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants, come to him. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. 
Remember, this is about 30 miles away. So they set off from Caesarea, head south, down to Joppa. About noon, the following day, as they are right, uh, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a sheet being let down by, uh, <clears throat> to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Let's pause here for a moment. So growing up in the church, my understanding of what we just read about Peter's vision was that this was God saying that Jews no longer had to eat kosher. They no longer had to eat the restrictive diet that he had given them back in the Old Testament. And I suppose that interpretation could make sense if we stopped reading right here. But as we continue to read through the text, we're going to see that that is not what's actually going on. God was not saying, hey, Peter, when you get back to Jerusalem, take James out for a bacon cheeseburger now. No, we, we have to be careful to be reading the text in context or we're going to get it out of context. So let's get back into the text. Verse 17, Peter's, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. What do you, what do you think he is wondering about? What things were standing out to him, do you think, in this vision? I think he was thinking about that sheet that was being lowered by its four corners, trying to figure out the connections there. The, the fact that there were all kinds of four-legged animals, like what was going on there? And how God spoke to him and said, do not call anything unclean that I've said is clean. And the fact that it happens three times would have been communicating to Peter, like, this is something that is very serious. Because in Deuteronomy, it says that on account of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be confirmed. So this has happened three times. Peter knows whatever the meaning of this mission is, uh, vision is, that it's, God is confirming it. It is settled. So let's get back into the text. So Peter's wondering about the vision. Men are standing at the gate. Verse 18, they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Now Peter, 
while, was he sti- <laughs> while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with him, for I have sent them. This would be very reassuring, I'm sure, for Peter, especially if he looked, as he looked down off the, the roof and saw one of those three men was a Roman soldier. If God hadn't told him, like, hey, I sent those guys, don't worry, he probably would have been looking for a way out the back door. Instead, he goes down. Peter goes down, verse 21. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel came to him, or a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with him, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. This is that 30-mile journey. He's walking from Moscow to, to Lewiston. Now the following day, he arrives in Caesarea, and Cornelius has been expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends in anticipation of Peter showing up. Cornelius is running all over town, getting all his friends and relatives, come, come, Peter's coming. Come to the house and hear what he has to sell us. And as Peter enters the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I am only a man myself. And while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, it's not, it's not actually against the law, not the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai. God never said that. But remember that the Gentiles, us, we don't practice Torah. We don't do the things that they do to make sure that they are ritually pure and clean. And so what they did, religious leaders decided to create a law to try to protect themselves so that they wouldn't become ritually unclean by interacting with Gentiles and just said, it's against the law to be with them. Don't eat with them. Don't go to their house because then you're going to become unclean. Which that actually gives us a little bit of insight into that first centurion and that account in Capernaum when he asks he sends for Jesus, and Jesus is heading to his house, and the centurion meets him. He's like, no, 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 don't come to my house. It's because he was respecting Jesus in the customs that they had, and he didn't want him to become unclean. Makes some sense there. But Peter continues by saying, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Things are starting to click for Peter now. The vision that God had given him on that rooftop in Joppa 
is starting to make sense for him. He's remembering, I'm sure, that sheet that's lowered down by the four corners and tying that to text and other places where God talks about the four corners of the earth. It's a phrase that he had heard before. And the fact that there are all kinds of four-footed animals. He's made, oh man, four, that's a number that refers to all nations. Nations outside of Israel. God was not talking about food. He's talking about people. And he was telling Peter, I'm talking about not just some people, but all people. All people of all the earth. All kinds of them to the very corners. And he was being told, stop seeing people as impure and unclean because of your, your traditions or your customs or because you have pushed them out and put them into a, a group. I have made them and I have declared them clean. And this is starting to click for Peter and he says it right there. God's shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, but there's still something else that he needs to make a connection with. And so he goes on in verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without, any, uh, without raising any objection. May I ask why you have sent for me? And Cornelius answers him. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I love Peter. He gives me hope and confidence in the fact that God is super patient with us. It is not until this moment that Peter realizes that the Gentiles are in. And not just in on the outskirts on, you know, just barely getting. They're full co-heirs and partners with God in the mission to the world back together. But somehow he didn't get it. He didn't get it years, ago, years before this when he was standing on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, actually probably sitting in the boat, as Jesus got out and cast out demons from a man 
a Gentile man, and then sat down with him and preached the gospel to him in a region that was all Gentile. He didn't get it then. He didn't get it when they traveled up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and Jesus healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. It still didn't sink in when they came back to that same region on the eastern shores of the Galilee, and Jesus fed 4,000 people. There is no coincidence that it was 4,000 people. He had been trying to show them this is not just for a select few. What I've come to do, what I've come to achieve is for all peoples. And this is not something new that God was doing. He'd been doing it for quite some time. Peter is, is almost a retelling of what happened with Jonah, who I mentioned before. Jonah, who had been told to go to a Gentile city, a Gentile capital city of Nineveh, and preach against their wickedness and call them to repentance, but instead flees to Joppa. And from Joppa, flees out into the ocean. Where was Peter when he got the call and got the vision? He was in Joppa, the very city that Jonah was in. And where does he go after God tells him to go to a Gentile city? He goes. He obeys. And he brings the gospel to a Gentile man. And he embraces what God is doing instead of what Jonah ended up doing, which was getting angry and throwing a fit. And even though Peter embraces it in this moment, he sees what God is doing, that God is opening the doors for all people, he still struggles. He still struggles to not fall back into his old ways and separating Gentiles into that group of those people over there who aren't in. And we know that because Paul, in his letter to the Galatian church, talks about how when Peter was in Antioch, he had to go to him and confront him because what Peter was doing is he was, he was meeting with Gentiles. He was having dinner with them, being in their houses, And then some Jews from Jerusalem came up. And as soon as they showed up, Peter started to distance himself, pulling away from those same people because he was afraid of what the Jews from Jerusalem would think of him. And he went right back to segregating people, not just in his mind, but also physically. He was forgetting that they had the commonality of having Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Instead, he was seeing them as a whole different group of people. And that is not anything new to us, is it? We know all too well 
about separating people into groups. It's been going on rampantly for the last couple of years. There are tons of examples of this. We could spend hours talking about all the different groups that people are putting themselves in and other people in. But the thing that comes to mind for me right now is what happened last week. The heartbreaking tragedy that happened in Texas should be a time that unites us in mourning and grief and our desires to to protect our children. But instead, it, it divides us further. And all the little groups that exist are pointing fingers at one another and shifting blame onto each other. And meanwhile, nothing changes. Because we start from a place where we are different and not together. And we just keep separating ourselves into these groups and look at those people over there and start to villainize them. And eventually we stop seeing them as people altogether. As many of the Jews did to the Gentiles before this moment with Peter and Cornelius. You know, we'd think that we, followers of Jesus, Gentile followers of Jesus, would not fall prey to this quite as easily as we do. And we do. We do it just as much as the next guy. We struggle with it just as much as Peter did to embrace the fact that God is for everybody. That he has invited everyone to the table. But, and just like Peter, we've got to be reminded each and every day to not call people impure, to not call them unholy, unworthy, and separate them out. Because God has declared them as clean. We are all created in the image of God. If we struggle to see one another, to love one another, that is, that's the one place that we can always start. We are all created in the image of God. And we have a God who loves us so immensely that he sent his son to earth to show us how to love one another, to show us how to love God and invite us to be a part of God's story of redemption, of putting back together the relationships that were broken, the relationships that are between all of us and between him. And that plan is something that we get to celebrate each and every week when we take communion together. If you're new with us this morning, 
we have what we call an open table, which all that means is that you don't have to be a regular attender here at Real Life or even a partner with us. All that we ask is that you have made that decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as, his, as your Lord and Savior, and that you are committed to being on mission with him to restore all things back to his original design. If you've made that decision, please celebrate with us. If you haven't, I just ask that you refrain from taking this today. May I suggest that instead you think about coming up front at the end to talk with one of the guys or gals that will be up here for prayer and just ask them, what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to, to surrender my life to Jesus? Each week we read from uh, Paul's letter to his, the Corinthian church that he planted in Corinth. And in there, Paul is addressing the fact that the church had gotten to a place where they were separating themselves again. And he was like, hey, you guys need to take a moment and examine yourselves and do this in a worthy manner. Because what had happened is they started to be selfish again and started to, to oust people because of their status in society or their jobs. And people were not being able to take part in communion. And so today as we are getting ready to take communion together, I want to just encourage us all to just take a moment and examine ourselves. Is there a place in our lives that we have started to push people out because of their beliefs, because of their work, because of their family? Where are we pushing people to the outside and saying, you're not welcome? I just want to give you a moment just to think about that. And then we're going to take the first step, what I believe is a first step in rectifying that. And that's going to be taking communion together. But just take a moment, do some self-reflection. And so as we take this initial step together by remembering and celebrating the sacrifice that Jesus made that day that was for all people in all of the world, that it was a sacrifice that gives every person an opportunity if they so choose to be equal member of the family of God. So on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, all of you, not just a select few, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember together. And then he took the cup, said, this is a cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember together.
Let's pray. Father God, we, Lord, we stand before you humbled and thankful, Lord, that you sent Peter to to Caesarea that day. Lord, that you made it abundantly clear to your disciples that your message was for all. And it has been that way from the beginning, that your intention has always been that all nations would be blessed. Lord, help us to remember that each and every day as that we go out, that we, are, we don't look for ways to separate and identify people by all the different things that we like to identify them with. But Lord, that we see that they are a child of God, that they are made in your image and they, they have been called to be a part of your family just as we have. Lord, help us to break down those barriers to go to the places that we are afraid to go and tell those people that they are loved by you. They are invited to be a part of the family and not on the outskirts of the family, but in the family, a part of the mission. So God, we just ask that you'll be with us this week and that we could glorify you in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.